0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 21st, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. Hey, Steve. Yeah. How's your scapula? My scapula?
0: <laughs> was that it? Was that clavicle? What was no, it? That it was, it was scapula. No, scapula. Okay, that's right. Good it's memory.
1: Healing nicely, thank you. The incision and drainage without antibiotics is working just fine. Uh-huh. They, they removed part of your back, right? No, no. I just put a little incision. I took a scalpel and just cut into the abscess and then mm-hmm. drained it. Oh God. That's it. Now it it doesn't it, it's getting a lot better, but it itches like a mother now. <laughs> well, wow. <laughs> that's <laughs> just, just a post inflammatory thing.
2: So what do you do? You get like a, a like a like a stick from the kitchen,
1: like a <laughs> saucepan or something. Oh, like like a put a little like, rag on the end of a, it. Yeah, a kitchen stick. Rubbing up against door jams <laughs> and stuff, that's terrible.
0: Like rolling around in the grass helps.
1: Is it true that itching means healing? Not necessarily. Not necessarily itching no. is kind of a complicated phenomenon. I do wonder though why this has got to be an epiphenomenon. Like why would you have a sensation that compels you to do the one thing you shouldn't do? <laughs> right, you know? right, right.
2: Right.
3: Yeah, you don't want to scratch like a, a scab or whatever
1: because yeah, that just yeah.
0: opens
3: it up. Okay. Yeah. There's nothing like a good itch though, man. Sometimes like, oh. <laughs> but
2: they,
1: they pulled out the packing and you're good to go now? Yeah, yeah. It's still slight, slight drainage. It's getting less every day. How big is your scar? Oh, it's going to be tiny.
2: Oh, it's too bad. It would have been oh. cool. We could have come up with, like, shark attack or bear, yeah. you know, whatever. We've got to come up with a good story.
3: <laughs> Pseudoscientist.
2: <laughs> Alien what, abduction. Looks like a shark tooth going through there? All right, all right. Go so Steve, Steve was... Surgical ski- implant. Skinny dipping in the ocean, and a very small shark came up and, like... Destroyed. That had only
1: one tooth. <laughs> one tooth shark? <laughs> <laughs> it's from really I'm glad you survived. As am I. Did you guys hear today that the... uh the Senate voted that climate change is not a hoax. Did that, they? Yes, I that did. They did not. Wow. Awesome. I'm, I'm surprised. It's a bit of a surprise. Yeah, that's very surprising. 99 to 1. It was Who's, one hold s-
0: <laughs> Wonder who. Really? Almost <laughs> it, unanimous. It, it, wait, James Inhofe, right? Nope. He voted oh, He voted for it. Yeah.
2: Wow.
3: Surprise. So why would they do that? Why, what's the rationale? Why?
1: So my understanding is that the Democrats added this on as an amendment specifically to force the Republican senators to – I'm sorry, it was 98 to 1 – specifically to force the Republican senators to put their nickel down, to say – to either vote for or against the notion that climate change is, quote-unquote, not a hoax.
0: Oh, so they tacked on a rider to some other bill and basically – To the Keystone
1: XL Pipeline bill.
0: Oh, that's right. Okay. All right. That's a weird rider, though, you know. That that does happen, Bob. Things like that do get – like have nothing to do with the main – Bill being voted on get tacked on because sometimes it's the only way they can get things through.
3: Could they put something like um,
0: "phrenology is bullshit"? Could they just throw that in there too? (laughs) I mean, can we repeal Dachshay or uh, other things doing that? I hope so.
1: Well, Well, they're still going to wiggle out of it. They're still going to say, "Well, the climate's changing." Sure, you know, no one's denying. I know, I know. You know, it's just not man-made or whatever. The proposed solutions are not good. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, I wish, okay.
1: Well, it's all, we'll this is all any, political maneuvering.
3: Why didn't they make it a little bit stronger, though? You know, like saying uh, anthropogenic climate change. Because then they would that. have
1: voted no. <laughs> they would have voted it down. This way, it, I don't know. It's just political calculation. You get them. I'm to sure, vote. they thought about it. Climate change is not a hoax, and then they could use that as political capital in the upcoming elections. Yeah, you know, something like yeah. that.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, but it, it makes it makes for a surprising headline until you sort of dig down and realize, ah, this is just political maneuvering. All right, Bob. Tell us about your super forgotten superhero of science for this week.
3: Certainly, uh, the forgotten superhero of science this week is Rosalind Franklin, 1920 to 1958. She was a pioneering molecular biologist who made significant contributions regarding DNA. Every hear of her?
0: I have. Uh, well, <laughs> yes, we have. I'm sure some of our audience have, but not everyone.
3: Now, Franklin, in, in her youth, absolutely fell in love with science. She went to one of the very rare schools in London that actually taught girls physics and chemistry. She made her dad upset when she was 15, claiming that she wanted to be a scientist. He kind of had the common prevailing attitude of the day that uh, that women it's kind of unsuited for higher education and that she would be best suited as a social worker. Uh, luckily, that did not happen. She uh, got her uh, education, a doctorate in physical chemistry in 1945 from Cambridge University. Very nice. Um, after that, she went to Paris for a few years at the Central Laboratory of Chemical Services of the state where she learned um, a very critical skill, x-ray diffraction which would come in handy very soon uh, thereafter. After college, she went to back to England where she uh, got a, a job as a research associate in John Randall's laboratory in King, King's College, London. There she met me like molecular biologist Maurice Wilkins. Now, he headed a separate research group and like hers, they were kind of indirectly or directly studying DNA, which at that time they called deoxypentose nucleic acid, uh, mm-hmm. not not deoxyribonucleic acid. He was actually not there when she arrived. And when he did finally arrive after, I think, vacation or something, he assumed that she was just an assistant, an assistant, like a technical assistant, and didn't even know that he, she was essentially his peer. And, uh, I mean, he realized his mistake, but they really seem to never have gotten over that kind of initial friction. Soon thereafter, this is where the real meat of the, of her life begins, really, in terms of her, her career. She carried out, uh, x-ray diffraction uh, studies to create uh, along with her PhD student uh, Ray Gosling uh something called photo 51 now this is really a, one of maybe the most the most famous images it was a diffraction image of the dna of a dna molecule that was the best ever created at that time uh, it was really a thing of beauty uh, according to many of the people who who saw it at that time from that image uh, you could be gleaned a lot of uh key characteristics of dna that were critical um another key contribution that Franklin made was the 1952 MRC or Medical Research Council report which she contributed to and had some very, very critical um, and important DNA details from her research in there as well. So, at this time in the early 50s, Watson and Crick, of course, these were the guys that were doing their revolutionary work with DNA at Cambridge University. Uh, they actually met Franklin on several occasions and Watson even heard her speak at a seminar Uh, about some of the work she was doing. So the weird thing was that uh, Maurice Wilkins worked with uh, Watson and Crick Crick, and Wilkins saw fit to show them Franklin's diffraction image without her knowledge. He really seemed to have no authorization to show her that. And they also appear to have learned a lot from reading Franklin's uh, MRC report. So those are the two critical events in her career and, um, and the controversy around it. So the question is, how much did all this help Watson and Crick in coming up with their final correct model of DNA? Uh, well, in the book, Double Helix, Watson said, The instant I saw the picture, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race. Uh, Many believed that uh, the image was critical for determining the the helical shape of DNA and uh, the calculations from using the image that they did determined the critical values for the shape and, uh, and size of DNA as well. And the MRC report also had lots of valuable information that they clearly looked at and clearly influenced their work. So I'm not trying to take anything away from Watson and Crick, what they achieved. What they did was was amazing. But it really is a genuine controversy whether she could have deduced the full structure of DNA uh, herself had her image not been shown to Watson and Crick. Uh, They clearly minimized her contributions Watson even disparaged her in her book that uh, a lot of people who worked on the project were very upset over the inaccuracies, which Watson kind of retracted a little bit in the epilogue of the book. Uh, So let me just end with a quote uh, from Lynn Osmond Elkin. She's a professor of biological sciences. She's really like a biographer of uh, of Franklin. She said – I think it should be called the Watson-Crick-Franklin structure. As far as I'm concerned, she was a de facto collaborator. Maybe she didn't give them her information directly, but every time they hit a stumbling point, it was her information that they got from Wilkins that straightened it out. So in conclusion, why isn't she a household name? Uh, read up on Rosalind Franklin and her amazing contributions. Mention her to your friends. Perhaps when discussing early diffraction images used to determine interphosphate distances. But uh, either way, more people should know about what she did.
1: Yeah, I just want to add two things. Uh one is that she died in nineteen fifty-eight at the age of thirty-seven. Yes, of yeah, of ovarian cancer. cancer. So yeah, ovarian cancer is bad. So that really cut her career very short. I mean just imagine. Oh my god.
3: By by all accounts, she was an amazing scientist, brilliant, yeah. ver incredibly thorough. It's just just to think that what she could have accomplished if she, you know, lived to seventy five. It's just uh it's right. sad. It's really sad, but still, you know, some people think she, even if she had survived she wouldn't have gotten the uh, the Nobel Prize. She clearly could not have gotten it because they don't award it posthumously. Um mm-hmm. but a lot of people think she wouldn't have gotten it anyway, but even Watson said later on that she deserved it. He he kind of yeah, begrudging, yeah. begrudgingly said she she really did deserve yeah. it. Yeah. Watson um,
1: Crick and Wilkins got it in 1962, so that was 4 yeah. years after she died, so that yeah. you know, that's why she didn't get it, but yeah, we don't know what would have happened had she been alive at the time. It's interesting. Yeah. All right, guys, well, for a few years now, we've been following the annual EDGE question. Uh, EDGE asks a number of authors and intellectuals and scientists, et cetera, some interesting technical or philosophical question, and then publishes all of the answers. This year's question is, what do you think about machines that think? Tons of answers, some very, very long. I got through as much of it as I could. Uh, did any stand out for you guys? I like
2: Daniel Dennett. Yeah, that's my favorite too. Yeah, I thought he really summed it up nicely.
3: Yeah, his was really cool. Uh, I got a couple quotes from him. He, he, his main thing was that, um, the real danger of AI is, is not them lording over us, but basically giving clueless machines, uh, the, the authority beyond. Their competence, so that that was his key thing, and he, and he had a really interesting quote. He said that handmade law and even science could come to occupy niches adjacent to artisanal pottery and hand knitted sweaters, which is really interesting.
1: Yeah, so, so for a little bit of background, a number of people who responded uh, in one way or another made this essential distinction. I do think that Dennett made it the best. That um, when you're talking about artificial intelligence, the definition has kind of bifurcated. And even though when the term is used in popular culture, most people think of a self-aware thinking machine, right? A a computer that has the same kind of self-awareness that we as people do. But AI is is the term is used in the computer world to refer to something very different, to refer to any system that can learn uh systems that are responsive that are you know expert systems things like that we refer to the algorithms that determine what characters in a video game do as ai right so yeah. you know dennett explains i think very nicely the fact that initially when we thought of computers that think of course we thought of computers that mimic human consciousness and early attempts at developing computer solutions to human problems like playing chess for example i think someone else brought this up as an example tried to solve like the chess playing problem as a human would by thinking about the moves in the way that people do but computer scientists realized that well computers are not brains they don't there are things that the human brain does much better than computers and there are things that computers do much better than the human brain and so they when they approach the problem from the strength of a computer which is the ability to crunch lots of data in a sort of a serial fashion. Then computers started beating the world champions in, uh, in chess. We talked just last week about a computer using this quote unquote brute force method to beat, uh, to play limit, po- yeah, hold poker. Um, same kind of thing. They, the computers don't understand chess the way a person does. They're just crunching all the possible moves and making the move following some algorithm, the one that, for example, limits the opponent's choices as much as possible. So those are two very different things that are still now existing as independent sort of technologies. Uh It's really the neuroscientists now that are trying to reverse engineer the brain partly by making computer models of the brain. And I do think that is the pathway to, let's call it, self-aware AI, to distinguish it from the not self-aware AI that, Dennett is talking about. So Dennett's point is a, Dennett's point is a very good one and it's one I think that we've brought up on this show before. I know I've made it myself in some venue. This notion that we are increasingly seeding the running of our day-to-day lives to AI-type devices. They're not a, they're not self-aware, they're dumb AI, but things mm. like your GPS. Right? So now you don't right. have to understand how to read a map and remember directions and have a feel for which highway goes where. You just Type in your destination and do what the GPS tells you to do. And it's great. It's, it's very useful. But, you know, I remember one time I was dri- driving in an unfamiliar location. I was pretty far from home following my GPS and the GPS signal was lost. And I had absolutely no effing idea where I was. You know what I mean? It's like I, I was yeah. completely and utterly lost. Without my GPS telling me where to go. Cause I wasn't following a route. I wasn't following a map. I was just turning the way I was told to turn. So Dennett makes the point that this could, you know, each decision may be rational, you know, turning over certain decision making and cognitive processes to computers that will do them better than we will. Flying planes, making diagnostic decisions. Yeah,
0: doing tests. Doing tests.
1: But then if, That the big picture is though that that may lead to a future in which we are cognitively crippled, you know, because we have turned so much over to computers that the world, our civilization will be on autopilot, basically. You know, we will have been removed too far even from sort of decision making positions because computers are doing it better
0: and we're just letting them do it until a Carrington type event. Yeah. Or larger occurs and then we're back to where we all started.
1: Oh, worse. Then we're truly effed because then we're, then we're we're like me with my GPS going out. Like now what do I do? Totally lost. We don't have the backup systems in place. Like I don't carry maps in my car anymore. Who needs them? I would love for
2: someone to actually say like, what could we do though to counteract that? Because you're right. Like you're not going to carry a backup System, are you really going to like get, you know, get your car armed with a map and, you know, spend the time educating yourself on exactly where you're going? Or are you just going to blindly let your GPS tell you where to go? I mean, that's, it's just human nature. We're constantly trying to save time and find convenience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? What is the course of action to make sure that, you know, if there is an EMP and we lose the power grid, how do we live past that?
1: Yeah, you know, Jay's asking a very interesting question is how do we keep this from happening? And Daniel Dennett asked the same question. You know, we need to keep this from happening. My fear is that we don't have a mechanism for that kind of top-down steering of our civilization, that we're gonna follow the, the pathways of least resistance, we're gonna make the short term advantageous decisions, and we'll just find ourselves in a, in a in a certain place in fifty years or a hundred years without ever specifically deciding to go there. And that could be a place where if we ever did have a problem with our computer infrastructure for whatever reason, it would be devastating.
3: All right, guys. I had a couple that really stood out for me. My favorite had to be from Chris DeBona. Uh, he's with Google. He, uh, kind of turns this on its head and he, he titles his The Limits of Biological Intelligence. Yeah. Right. So basically, yeah. so basically he's a robot talking about the future of biological intelligence. So he's, he was saying how some people think that the coming biological future will doom us all, uh, which he doesn't agree with. He's describing what it takes to create a human though. And, and it's just so funny. He says, your specimen has to gestate. Gestate? I mean, it's not like these, animals come about the way we do through clean, smart crystallography or in the nitrogen lakes of my youth. They have to be, they have to be kept warm for months and months and then decanted incubated, yep. and then decanted a very messy process. <laughs> I assure you. <laughs> and the other one that really. That I don't – I understand where this guy's coming from but I just don't disagree. He says – this is uh, Jonathan Gatshaw. Uh, the, he calls it the rise of the storytelling machines. Now, he says that he's not worried about the dystopian possibilities. that They really don't trouble him. But he is troubled by the probable rise of art-making machines he claims that that art i mean and this is true art is arguably what most distinguish, distinguishes humans from the rest of creation and that's that's pretty much true but he says if human beings are no longer needed to make art then what the hell would we be for and then he concludes by saying you know when machines can outpaint us or outcompose us when their stories are more gripping and poignant than ours, there will be no denying that we are ourselves just thought machines and art machines and outdated and inferior okay. models at that. Now, I totally disagree. Uh, I would absolutely I totally love disagree it. With that too. I would love it if, if we cre- had a creation that could, uh, that could outcreate us in terms of stories and art. I mean, that would be, sure, it would be like, oh, uh, you know, it would be frustrating at a level that we could never create anything as good, but oh my God, just enjoy it, man. What the hell? Oh you will never <laughs> Enjoy, you know, such sublime art uh, ever in your life. So you're just gonna say forget it because it's gonna make you feel bad. Bullshit. I don't actually disagree, though. I don't actually disagree because oh, wow. his point okay.
2: is that at that point, you know, humanity is truly displaced. You know, Aubrey de, de Grey had a few interesting points that I think kind of kind of talks about this. Like h- he titles his piece "When Is a Minion Not a Minion," and you know he 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 was saying you know is it possible you know are we, can we create machines that are semi intelligent that aren't like phenomenally intelligent to do like more advanced things but do they actually have to be like superhuman intelligent and super better at everything um you know he laments the idea that he says any possible technology that anyone thinks is desirable will eventually be developed so that's interesting he's saying in essence it's going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. And I, and I am fearful. I mean the fear is, Bob, the baseline fear to both of you Bob, you and Evan, is that yes, we will be displaced. And what makes humans special? What truly makes us special? And that guy was saying it's our art. It's our ability to create. It's our ability to think out, outside of the box and come up with things that haven't existed before. And if machines do that an order of magnitude better than us, we are in bad shape. And that is
1: bad. I, I I disagree. I don't
0: see it go. I don't see it going there though.
1: There's a lot of assumptions in how AI will manifest and how what our relationship with it will be. Let me let me back up a little bit and talk about some of the themes that sort of were running through many different responses here. Most of the respondents, I think, accepted the premise that one day we would have artificial intelligence, both self-aware and other, you know, non-human-like intelligence. Most, that but not all. But not all. Was, there was a couple. It was
0: more. Yeah, more of a matter of when, right? How, how, how close it was are more we like, to really how these sorts will it manifest?
1: I, I, there wasn't a lot of talk about timeline, like what, what's the year where we're going to get there. Not a, a lot of people were, were projecting like how long sure. it's going to take. It was more how is it going to manifest? Exactly what form is it going to take? You know, that was, I think, most of, Of the responses, thinking about like, what's the relationship going to be between people and machines and what niche are they going to serve? And, you know, how do you define thinking? How do you define intelligence? What's the Mm. difference between a meat machine and a silicon machine? That's where a lot of them, a lot of them went. There was, you know, a couple of people said they don't think it's ever going to occur. There was, um, one that gave a very specific reason, which, uh, I thought was interesting. And that was the notion that human intelligence is, a quantum phenomenon and therefore is like not deterministic and computers are deterministic and therefore we will never get AI out of the kinds of machines that we're making today. Oh,
3: uh, I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there really is no good evidence that it, that, that awareness and intelligence is a quantum phenomenon. I mean, that's the whole microtubules, right? Uh, from, uh, from what's his name? I mean, that, that's never been clearly shown, has it?
1: Well, he, you know, he was uh, talking about he, – he, his premise was as we investigate the functioning of biological systems more and more, it's becoming increasingly naive to assume that there are no quantum effects, you know, sort of perkling up to, you know, neurological functions. So that was kind of the assumption of okay. his thinking, which, I, yeah, that I think is still arguable.
2: I get the idea Absolutely. Even still, I think I think you know as miniaturization continues to to go and and um you know we're, we get a firmer grasp understanding of how the human mind works, we will be able to develop some type of mind. It might not be human, but there'll be there will be some type of mind that you know it's happening.
1: Yeah, but I think a lot of people made the made specific points that you know why we shouldn't be afraid of our coming robot overlords is because you know we're we are assuming that self-aware AI is going to be human because that's the only thing that we have, as a basis, you know. But already, you know, as Dennett pointed out, as we talked about already, as we're just thinking about what computers do and what computers do well and how to solve these kind of problems the way a computer can, it's going in a very different direction than the way humans, human cognitive solutions to these kinds of problems. So I think in terms of creating things that are within the realm of AI, either type of AI, in order to achieve goals, uh, in order to function in our civilization, they're not going, to, we're not going to end up creating a human-like intelligence. We're going to create AI that's very different, that does AI the way computers do it well, and they will be, they will work for us. They will be our tools. You know, we will, you know, why would we ever put in them any kind of self-preservation that might, be inconvenient for us in the future. I think it's just not going to happen. I think the the completely separate pathway of deliberately trying to reverse engineer the human brain in silicon, that will lead to human-like AI, but that will be a research paradigm. That will be a neuroscientific endeavor, not let's build a machine that could do work for us. Machines that do work for us are not going to be human-like AI. And I don't think we have anything to worry about from that. Well, I mean, I I don't know. That's
3: a big, that's a big assumption, Steve. I mean, you know, say we. Of course it is. Anything about the future is a
1: big assumption.
3: Okay. But I think it's, I think (laughs) it's an unwarranted, I think it's an unwarranted (laughs) one because reverse engineering the brain, sure, that, that would give us incredible insight into neuroscience. But, uh, I mean, once we do that and can do it well, I mean, you know, it would be trivial to make it not only just as, just as smart as a human, but, you know, a thousand times smarter. I mean, I think we would try to leverage that uh that ability and into into other ways rather than just learning neuroscience i think but that's, that's a, a, no a huge brainer. assumption
1: on your part because again you're assuming that that human like artificial intelligence is going to do something do some task better than other forms of ai and maybe it won't why why would we create an all-purpose ai like that when we can create right. narrow purpose ais that function a million times better for the specific task we need them to do and without having to worry about you know the machine uprising
3: yeah but what about asking it to do tasks that just aren't suited for for digital minds
1: well we don't know what those are right but we have computers guiding our spaceships and driving our cars for us and doing all that kind of stuff sure we'll we'll make computers that do those things really well I, I think you know. Once we get now, we're talking about fifty plus years out. We have no idea what's going to happen because yeah. you know there's the civilization is chaotic. It's too contingent. There's too many variables. Too many factors. Yeah. There's too yep. many variables, and you know we we just don't know how it's all going to work out. I'm just saying this is the way things are going now, and it kind of makes sense that future technology will reflect. That division, you know, having, having the sort of the dumb AI doing things it does well, but not mimicking humans rather than the older and I think out of date notion of we're going to make computers that think like people, but faster. I, I just don't know that that's going to be the path that we're going to take except as a neuroscientific program. You know, I think that definitely we're doing that, but I don't know that we're going to do it as a way of solving problems. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, the great courses. We've done, uh,
2: a lot of reviews on these courses. We've listened to a lot. But this one... Whoa! <laughs> this one—I mean, this, this one is has been lovingly
1: created by Stephen Novella, Doctor Stephen Novella. I know him. I understand that the great courses are taught by professors and experts that we know and respect, like Stephen Novella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is my second course, "Your Deceptive Mind: A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills," essentially a critical thinking and skepticism one hundred and one primer. It goes through the neuroscience of memory, perception, cognitive biases, logical biases, and numeracy. It goes through the philosophical underpinnings, underpinnings of science, and then talks about the difference, the difference between science and pseudoscience. And then gives lots of examples. Uh, by the time you're done watching or listening to this course, you will have taken a pretty thorough tour through all of the critical thinking stuff that we talk about on this show and elsewhere. And in the skeptical movement.
2: You know, you don't sound excited, Steve, but I'm excited. No, oh,
1: it's exciting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a great course, Steve. But there's also over 500 lecture series on lots of interesting subjects in all sorts of formats. And for a limited time, the Great Courses has a special offer for Sgu listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Stevens' Your Deceptive Mind. And you you get up to 80% off the original price, plus free streaming in any format, which is a great deal, but it's for a limited time. So, guys, to get your special offer
3: of up to 80% off your Deceptive Mind and other great courses, plus free streaming, go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics.
1: All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, guys, let's move on to some news items. Evan, you're going to tell us about the boy who didn't go to heaven.
0: Oh, boy. <laughs> that could be a lot of people, actually, a lot of boys. Um Yes, yeah, so the book was called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, A Remarkable Account of Miracles, Angels, and Life Beyond This World. A true story. This, uh, says a true it right there the story. That's right. The cover did say it. It was published in 2010. A best-selling book sold over one million copies to date. And there was a made-for-TV movie based on the book, which also aired in 2010. Just a few little uh, reviews of the book at the time, um, a Princeton book review. They said, the afterlife is a fascinating topic and Alex's story, Alex uh, being the, uh, the child who uh, says he went to uh, heaven, Alex's story of meeting God and interacting with angels is inspiring and amazing. The story is true. Here's the quick backstory. It happened in 2004. Father and son, Kevin Malarkey and his six-year-old son, Alex Malarkey, uh, Is suff- it malarkey suffered or malarkey? injury. Yeah, what's up with well, that? Well, everybody's saying Malarkey, but it's M-A-L-A-R-K-E-Y. Malarkey. Malarkey? I think it's Malarkey. <laughs> well, whatever. <laughs> okay. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Fine. Kevin Malarkey and his six-year-old son, Alex, suffered uh, terrible injuries in a bad car accident, and the impact from the crash paralyzed Alex. Uh, It was unlikely, doctors said, at the time that he would survive. But two months later, Alex awoke from his coma with an incredible story to share. Events of the accidents at the scene he was able to retell, and of the hospital while he was unconscious. Angels who took him through the gates of heaven itself. Unearthly music that sounded terrible to a six-year-old, but most amazing of all he talked to Jesus at the time and yes wrote a book about it but hang on reality we have a problem <clears throat> it's come to light that alex well he lied uh, he he made the whole thing up he uh, not the accident of course right but his recounting of, of the story yes yeah. he uh, embellished, embellished which is about as nice a way as you can put it so uh just recently uh alex uh, who's now 17 just recently released an open letter to Christian publishers and bookstores the ones who have you know pushed uh, his book sales, uh, confessing that the entire accounts of his journey to heaven was fictional and he implored the publishers to remove the books uh, and get them out of the stores. Here's some details from his letter. Please forgive the brevity. Uh, because of my limitations. I have to keep this short. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I'd never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to do so. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It's only through repentance that your, of your sins and a belief in Jesus, the Son of God, who died for your sins, and so on. So, you know, he, his faith is not at all shattered by by any of this but he was recanting his story and actually uh, alex's mother for years now has been trying to uh tell publishers and people everywhere that this book went ahead and they knew it was it was false at the time um for years now uh but nobody really wanted to listen to the mother because the book was selling so well uh she
1: Evan, the thing that's interesting is that it's not as if the mother and Alex don't believe in the afterlife or in heaven or anything like that. It's more that the the details of the story that Alex told when he was younger are not biblically accurate. And that so they're concerned that this story, which is not biblical – is getting attention. So it's just that they're even like more fanatically religious and this doesn't cut it.
0: <laughs> that's that's an interesting way of Well, that's you know, it. The it's not
1: biblically sound. <laughs> that's their objection. They're worried about this, this story not because it's not, you know, biblically accurate enough, but the the, the bigger point here and the reason why we're talking about this is uh, often we hear from true believers this assumption which I is naive that, well, why would somebody lie or that somebody couldn't make up a story this elaborate? How could a six-year-old or or whatever come up with these kinds of elaborate details? He never could have heard that from anywhere. You know, this right. didn't see this in any movie. This is too much for a six-year-old to make up. And so that is used to sort of authenticate these types of stories. Well, here we go, six-year-old made up a, comp- a very elaborate and detailed, you know, fictional story, in a, for a quirky reason. That's not that much of a stretch to get attention. So you just can't say somebody that age can't do this or that. People would not lie to this extent because there are many cases where we know that exactly what
0: happened. And you know the the old saying that uh, you ever heard: "Haters gonna hate," right? Well, believers are gonna believe. <laughs> And this, even, even though Alex has admitted that he made the story up, uh, they're not, uh, they're not critical of Alex. A, a couple comments are appearing all over the place. There's, there's a Facebook page called Pray Every Day for Alex Malarkey. Um, I'm still praying every day for Alex. I'm not backing off. What does it matter if the book is true or not? Alex is healed in Jesus' name. Anything is possible to those who believe. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: So, like, nothing. Yep. Th-
0: to me that freaks me out because in essence it's
2: saying nothing really matters. there's no consequence to anything you know it, everything is
0: good, complete relativism yeah
1: yeah, yeah the truth doesn't matter but it, no, which is which doesn't. is a very common theme that you see. Right.
0: Or the real miracle is that he even survived and yeah. you know even though he was in a coma he did come out of it. Yes, he's paralyzed, but the fact that he's alive, that cannot be denied and therefore miracles do happen therefore God Jesus and everything yeah. else.
1: So anything good that happens is God, anything bad that happens is the devil.
0: Well, yeah. Well, you know, you add an O to God, it's good. And you, you know, like, you'd add a D to evil, and it's devil. Yeah. I mean, why <laughs> you can't argue with that. Wow, Evan <laughs> you just blew my mind.
1: Evan, anyone who moves is VC. Anyone who doesn't move <laughs> is well disciplined VC. <laughs> That's awesome. Ain't war hell? Yeah. They always come out at night, except during the day.
0: Except during the day. Yeah. <laughs> As I
1: win tails, you lose. Okay, <laughs> let's go on. <laughs> uh, there's a recent study that came out in Nature Biotechnology looking at ge- using genetic modification to biofortify foods. Uh, and it was essentially looking at the marketability of such products. Now, we've spoken about GMOs, genetically modified organisms in the past. There's a lot, in my opinion, there's a great deal of Uh, deliberate misinformation out there. There's in fact a misinformation campaign that specifically is trying to demonize the technology of genetic modification and GMOs in particular. The GMOs that are on the market now mostly have a couple of traits. Either they include insecticides in order to uh, make the plants resistant to a specific kind of pest or uh, herbicide resistance so that you can use herbicides to kill off weeds and it won't affect the crops, right? So the so-called Roundup Ready and the BT varieties. There are, you know, other types of GM crops are coming out as well, like certain uh, disease resistance. Um, there was, you know, GM potato that was recently approved that produces less of a potentially carcinogenic compound when they're fried, which is nice. But there is a sort of a second generation of GMOs that are are in the pipeline that are specifically uh, to biofortify common crops, meaning that it will increase one or more micronutrients, vitamins or minerals, in the crops. The And this is with the subject of the paper. They were essentially wondering what consumers thought about biofortified GM varieties and what they found is that uh, the, that consumer acceptance would actually be quite high in fact uh, on average consumers would be willing to pay a premium to get food that had enhanced nutrition uh, anywhere from 20 to 70 percent higher prices if they thought it was more nutritious the poster child for biofortified crops is golden rice golden rice has been being developed for about 20 years, since the 1980s really. The idea is to get rice to create vitamin A precursors, like beta carotene, in the edible parts of the plant, in, the, in the, the part of the rice kernel that people will eat. This is specifically targeted at the rampant vitamin A deficiency in the developing world. A lot of these parts of the world uh, eat rice as their staple crop, and therefore, if, if the rice, rice generally is a good source of calories, but doesn't have a lot of micronutrients in it, so it's kind of the so-called "quote unquote" empty calories. But if uh, it was fortified with the ability to increase vitamin A levels, then that could have that could have a significant impact on vitamin A deficiency, deficiency which causes blindness and death. About half a million children go blind from vitamin A deficiency a year. Yeah. Wow. So part of the authors of this study, um, and others writing about this topic point out the fact that biofortified GMOs are kind of the Achilles heel of the anti GMO movement. The anti GMO movement, like Greenpeace and other organizations have tried, you know, their, their talking points, their propaganda is that GMOs equal pesticides. GMOs are all about using more pesticides. To help corporations and and big agro, but it but is not doesn't do anything for the consumer. That of course isn't true. The technology could be used for a lot of different reasons. Those are just some of the first types of GMOs that are on the market. But if for example golden rice gets approved, and then we say okay, here's a genetically modified organized organism that is saving poor kids, that doesn't help the farmer, doesn't help big agro, that only helps the consumer and is specifically targeted at poor blind kids in developing countries or preventing them from going blind, it kind of pulls the carpet out from the anti-GMO talking points. And it it does that very effectively. So first of all, Golden Rice is being developed by a humanitarian cooperative. It's not being developed by any corporation.
0: The corporation – Monsanto n- need not. Well, apply. Monsanto
1: and Syngenta own patents on some of the technology that's necessary to make golden rice, but they said, "Yeah, you guys can use it for free there you because go. It, yeah, it's for humanitarian purposes. Uh, there's no issue of pesticides. There's no issue of really cross contamination." Uh, it's open source. It's going to be given freely to whoever you know wants to use it. There's no issue of like Western corporations raping developing farmers, whatever. You know, all the usual talking points <laughs> just don't apply. So, very interestingly, uh, Greenpeace still opposes Golden Rice. GM Watch and other anti-GMO organizations and outlets oppose it, and they're, they're the reasons for doing so, in my opinion, are so profoundly lame. That it really exposes the ideological nature of the hardcore anti-GMO. Awesome, awesome. Movement. How
3: lame? How lame are we talking? Give us All right, more.
1: so, so like for example, they'll say, "Well, it's not ready yet." Well, yeah, you know, it's <laughs> sure, it's not ready yet. They, there's Golden Rice, just uh, called GR, came out in 2000, and the amount of Beta carotene, and there wasn't enough. So then they uh, improved on that, and GR2 came out in 2005. That had 23 times as much beta carotene in it, which is more than enough. And there have been now several studies which show that the GR2 rice, if you eat it, it actually increases your vitamin A levels. It's bioavailable, and it and it works, and it's safe, etc. So, but it has to be now be crossed with local varieties, so it has the traits that would be acceptable to, to like, a, if you're a farmer in the Philippines, you need a, a cultivar of rice that will grow in the Philippines. So that's going to still take a couple of years to do that. So I've read different estimates, um, but, you know, we could have, you know, varieties ready to plant within a couple of years. It could take a little bit longer. But they, but they, of course, they use that as an, as a tick against it. It's not yet ready. And then they, they, they just raise every possible objection that they could. Like, for example, Greenpeace said, oh, we should be spending the money fixing poverty. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's eradicate <sighs> poverty from the world. <laughs> and of course, you could say that about any program that mm-hmm. is designed to make the lives of those living in poverty better. You could say, oh, we should spend our money eradicating poverty rather than educating them or whatever. In Getting them case, medicine. Because, yeah, giving them medicine. Just, that's just a band you know. Yeah, sometimes people need band-aids. So that's a, that's a completely lame argument in my opinion. Then they say that, well, there's, you're, you're better off giving them multivitamins. And so first of all, that's already being done. And yeah, sure, that helps, but it hasn't eradicated the problem. There's still millions of kids going blind, uh, from vitamin A deficiency. That's also a program that needs to be continuously done. Whereas once farmers are growing golden rice, you're done. Then it's, you know, that, that, that's sort of a self-perpetuating solution. So it's the nirvana fallacy on steroids, right? It's not perfect. Therefore, let's not do it. No, it's no solutions perfect. But what this study and other studies have shown is that golden rice would be cost effective. It's, and sometimes even more cost effective than the alternatives, which are not really good. That's a false choice. They're not really alternatives. We should be doing everything. Yeah. Get them to plant carrots. Give them multivitamins and give them golden rice. We need to do all of those things because no subset of them is going to completely solve the problem. All
3: right, it's a, it's a false dichotomy. Yeah,
1: it's a it's a false choice. It's a nirvana fallacy. It's not perfect, so it sucks. Uh, it's just a you know non sequiturs at the wazoo, like it's not ready yet. And then it's the usual stuff of you know, oh, th- we ha- they haven't been tested enough to show that they're fit that they're safe. It's the pre- you know precautionary principle totally abused, which is sort of the mainstay of anti-GMO rhetoric. Uh, But they don't have one really good argument against just completing the development of this technology. You know, the money's all been been donated already. It's all there, you know. It's Mm -hmm. just going to take a couple more years, you know, to to sort it out. Yes, it should be studied to make sure that the the bioavailability is good and – you know, that the, it's cost-effective for the farmers and there's no unintended consequences. Yeah, sure, of course, we should do all the studies that we need to to track it and follow it and make sure it works out. And any new technology could take longer than we anticipate. There could be unforeseen consequences. But what they don't do, which is what I think what we should do in situations situation like this, is take a risk versus benefit assessment. What's the potential risk of of completing the development of golden rice versus the potential benefit? The risks are extremely low. It's extremely cost effective. The potential benefit is saving the sight and the lives of millions of poor kids. Hmm. The the good news is that their position on this is so shaky that um, even people formerly in their camp are starting to go, yeah, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with saying let the the kids go blind and die just so that we – have our bright line in the sand on genetic modification. That's know?
3: awesome. That is such an awesome idea. Yeah. yeah, really separate the the wheat from the chaff,
1: as it were.
0: Yeah. Ha! Well said, Bob. Yeah,
1: it's you know it's interesting. This is really, you know, in my opinion, if you're against golden rice, given the, all the data that we have, you know that that position is the position of a dedicated anti-GMO ideologue. Right, right. You, you are ideologically crippled. It's just yeah. showing, showing yeah,
3: yeah. that aspect of your
1: belief. Right. Well, guys, we have another Valentine's Day-themed sponsor for this week, proflowers.com.
2: Yeah, you could get one dozen assorted roses with a free glass vase for just $19.99. That's a really good price. Yeah, and on top of that, if you spend $10 more, you can get the ruby-colored vase, which is even more vasey. I like that one. It's really pretty. We're looking at pictures of it right now. Go to proflowers.com. And use the code skeptic.
0: Here's some good points though. Delivery on Valentine's Day is guaranteed. That's very important because you'll look like a loser if you get it the day, a- if you give it the day after. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's not good. You know from experience. I mean. Oh
0: gosh. Never make that mistake again. And look, when she says she doesn't need flowers, she means get me some flowers, <laughs> right? Read between the lines. The longer you wait, it's going to be harder to find roses at these prices.
3: So guys, go to proflowers.com. Click on the blue microphone in the top right corner and type in Skeptic, S K E P T I C. That's Proflowers.com. Click on the microphone, type in Skeptic. Order today. This deal expires the Friday before Valentine's Day at midnight.
1: All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, well, Jay, speaking about technologies that might help the poor, I understand that Bill Gates something about butt juice. Gotta tell me what this is.
0: <laughs> is it is it a new a new platform, a new software? What? <laughs>
1: I know, there's there's
2: jokes here, but in the end, this is a wonderful thing. So the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is funding an invention that can have a profound impact on, oh, I don't know, Steve, two billion people's lives or or potentially a lot more than that. Uh, You might not guess, though, that it's a steam-powered sewage processor named the (laughs) Omni-Processor. Awesome. I love it. So this isn't a joke. In fact... Um you know, sewage treatment is predicted to be a huge industry industry globally moving forward. I mean a lot of companies are, are looking to invest in this. Companies are out there that specifically look at what are going to be the necessities and the, the uh sought after technologies of the future and, and sewage treatment is one of them. Bill Gates has stated that the omniprocessor can help solve one of the biggest problems for the developing world and that is access to clean water. But specifically the machine is 75 feet or 23 meters long by 26 feet or 8 meters across, not that big, and is essentially a small processing plant that can process 14 tons of sewage each day. 14 tons. That's that translates lot. into getting rid of sewage of a 100,000 people per day, and the byproduct is pure water, electricity, and pathogen-free ash.
0: Huh. So cool. this so- this – as it
2: kills the pathogens? Yeah, I mean it's so it it yeah, l- as I get into this, you'll you'll see why. But Evan, this thing is pretty damn impressive. So and, and on top of that, it, it gains power as a net power gain using the sewage as a fuel source. So the reason why wow. the project was started in the first place was that the world has a significant sewage problem and it's growing As our numbers grow and it's really getting to the point where we need to start – like Bill Gates is doing it the right way. He's he's trying to come up with solutions that are not only going to help people today but also address a massively huge problem that we're going to face in the future. So water gets contaminated. It, It happens all the time and it's due to improper handling of human waste or primarily due to improper handling of human waste. This leads to disease and death. Uh, guys, unbelievable amount of kids die every year from contaminated water. I didn't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 700,000 kids a year die.
3: Oh, my God.
2: And many, many Jeez. others that do survive have mental and physical development issues because of the diseases that they catch. So this new system was designed and built by a company called Janicki Bioenergy, and it's an energy firm based uh, near Seattle. And the significant difference is that this plant burns sewage at a 1,000 degrees Celsius. That's hot. So hot indeed that uh-huh. there is no pathogen survival after it goes through the process. There's no odor whatsoever from this plant. And you know, other treatment plants burn fossil fuels, which I didn't realize that. And, the, and at much, much lower temperatures, and there's nowhere they are nowhere near as efficient as the Omniprocessor. processor. And the OmniProcessor produces 86,000 liters of pure water, and that's 250 kilowatts of electricity a day above what goes into it. So it's a nice. net gain, a net gain of, of drinkable right out of the machine, drinkable water and electricity. Like it's unreal. The plan is to have a pilot launch in Dakar, Senegal, where it'll be tested. It'll be optimized. They'll be experimenting with hooking it into. You know, any, any local systems that they need to interface with, you know, where do you put it? Where's the best place to put it for each city or for each population? And, and lots of details like that. How do you get the sewage to and from or just to the plant? What do you do with the ash? You know, the pitch is how much is this going to cost guys per implementation?
1: 1.5 million
2: <laughs> dollars. Yeah, it's 1.5 million. <laughs> uh, not Jesus. a lot of money. Seriously, guys. No. It's not, instead, a lot of money. It,
1: it, you'll, you'll recoup that fast when, you, with the electricity you're going to generate. Well, they and this is brilliant too. The pitch
2: is this isn't the, I guess they're, they're saying, you know, they're not talking to local governments. They're saying, Hey, entrepreneur, do you want to start a business? This is a business. You can get paid to take the sewage off of people's hands. You could sell the water it produces and recoup money from the ash and from the electricity.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is amazing. Jay, did you find any any criticism, any skepticism about this technology? Yeah. I
2: looked and so far no. I mean, maybe because it's in the very very early phases, but Steve, the prototype works.
1: Yeah, they have it's, a working prototype. That's good.
2: And and this prototype is they already out? They already beat it. They already optimized it and made it a lot yeah. better.
1: But you know, like somebody like Bill Gates behind it, you know, this is not going to be a fly by night. You know, if he wants to push this through, you think it'll happen?
2: It is, it is happening and I yeah. am very impressed, very impressed with his efforts and, uh, you know, what his organization, his foundation is doing. I don't really know, you know, how skeptically minded he is. I would just assume that he has a pretty damn good foundation already in place, if not, you know, very well thought out. Yeah. Well, vaccine Yeah, he is. He seems to be science minded. So, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll make an attempt to get him. I'd love to have a discussion with him.
1: Anyone listening to the show as an inside track, let us know because, you know, people like Bill Gates are surrounded by an army of people whose job it is to keep people like us from talking to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Jay, let's go on with Who's That Noisy?
2: Okay, so last week I played an interesting Who's That Noisy? Do
3: you guys have any guesses on what it might be? I thought toilet flush the first half, not the second half. Toilet
2: flush? Oh, God. The engineers. The first half. The
3: (laughs) the first half.
2: The engineers that, that developed this thing are going to be very depressed. No, that is the, the space shuttle landing gear dropping. Oh, wow. It's a combination of sounds that are all happening at the same time. Of course, you know, the doors have to open and the gear come down. I just thought it was really cool. I never heard that isolated so well before, but there it is. Yeah,
0: that's, that would be a tough one to, uh, parse out or identify on it, on its own because I really, who, who has heard that?
1: So Jay, just to clarify for our audience, you're not doing the contest that we've done in previous years, but you're going to come up with something new to do with who's that noisy.
2: Yeah. I thought, you know, we did the contest two years in a row and I thought I'd come up with something different. You know, I'm having some fun thinking of themes and doing some th- types of sounds that Evan hasn't done before I have a really good idea fun cool thing demonstration for next week so next week will be uh, you know guess what it is but also you know there's a story behind it that let's see who gets affected by this thing you'll see I'll But tell do you, you still
1: you still want our listeners to send in their guesses
2: yes absolutely send in your guesses to where should people send their guesses Evan they can send their guesses into WTn at the skepticsguide.org
1: well what do you got for this week
2: Okay, so I think if anybody's been paying attention to the last two noises, you're getting an idea of what the theme is. Um, so this one might be easy or seemingly easy, but I want you to, to email me the absolute specifics of where this comes from. I feel the liftoff. The clock
0: has started. I like I like that Roger a classic 19 yeah. 19- yeah yeah he has yeah, that like 50s uh, or yeah. 60s thing
2: like
1: Alpha Echo Minor. yeah all right Jay thank you so we're gonna do a couple emails this week the first one is a follow up to our deep web discussion Jay quite a few people uh, sent in additions and corrections to your discussion of the deep web that we did when we were in Auckland New Zealand. So, again, I'm not going to read any any specific one. So give us an update on that discussion about the deep web. Let us know what you got wrong and, and what uh, additions you need to make.
2: Yeah, when I did it, I, I did ask for people to email me w- with clarifications. There was a lot of questions that I had that I, I couldn't find answers to. So I reported on the deep web and the dark web a few weeks ago and – You know, Like I said, I found that there were some answers that I I couldn't find and a lot of awesome listeners emailed in giving me um, the information that they had, especially Richie Wilson who proved to be an absolute internet badass who gave me awesome information and lots of links and everything. So I, I was able to really fill in all the gaps here. So first, the deep web and the dark web are not synonymous. The deep web is anything online that cannot be indexed and this means that it's not publicly accessible, right? So as an example, anything that requires a login is considered the deep web. Like most of the websites that are considered on the deep web are .gov or .edu sites because they have incredibly large databases of information that they've made available that just simply won't be indexed by search engines. And even your um, email box online, like if you have a Gmail account, that's part of the deep web. You know, since you're the only person that can see it. And other things that are considered on the deep web are dynamic web web pages like when you see results from search criteria you enter. Because that web page is actually being manufactured for you on the spot. And also corporate intranets. So the deep web is common and we are all using the deep web. Most of us at the very least.
1: And that's the part that is potentially bigger than the surface web. Just because it contains these massive databases.
2: Right. Yeah. And a lot of the stats that I quoted, you know, I did have some clarifications on those. But in essence, yeah, I guess the deep web, you know, it could be bigger. I just don't trust any of the stats. And I think, you know, I'd leave that up to, to our listeners to go find information that they, they trust. Okay. So I also talked about the Tor browser and many, many of those who responded said that I mischaracterized it as a very nefarious tool used primarily for bad things. And I did come to that conclusion mainly due to the interview that I did with someone who's well acquainted with the dark web. And I I think that we were focusing a lot on that information. And it seemed to me from that that, wow, this is a really sketchy place to be. But I'd like to make some really important clarifications. So I I, uh, was forwarded a link to torproject.org. That's t-o-r project.org. And this website goes into very, very exquisite detail about the Tor project. So they said, Tor provides the foundation for a range of applications that allow organizations and individuals to share information over public networks without compromising their privacy. Individuals use Tor to keep websites from tracking them and their family members or to connect to news sites, instant messaging services, or the like when these are blocked by their local Internet providers. Tor's hidden services... Uh, Let's users publish websites and other services without needing to reveal the location of the site. Individuals also use Tor for socially sensitive communication chat rooms and web forums for rape and abuse survivors or people with illnesses. Now, I will say that is a very sanitary way to describe it, but it is accurate. You know, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, so yes, that's, you know, that's the absolute, you know, that's like the best way that it's being used and the most honorable way that it's being used. And that is, you know, a lot of people that use Tor, you know, fully believe in this and, and they, they support it. And I actually, after doing all of my research, I completely, um, I completely back the project and I think it's a fantastic thing to have out there. I mean, at its core, Tor hides your identity and stops. Your activity from traffic analysis and, and traffic analysis is when like your comings and goings are tracked and tons of information on who you are and what you do can be inferred by just where you go and who you talk to. So this is all connected to the Snowden incident. So if you understand the details about what happened with Snowden and, and you know he even talks about the Tor browser, the Tor browser eliminates you from that massive data collection that's going on. So Tor is used to evade internet spying and censorship around the world. And if this is important to you, then I suggest you use it. I really do. It's Tor is not a gateway to all things that are bad online, as I may have led you to believe with my last report. And there are tons of great reasons why people use Tor. And I like the fact that it is, in, in essence, it is there to protect you, the user. Now, another quick clarification. The dot .onion sites I mentioned are what is considered the dark web. And this is where someone can, for example, have a website with a dot onion extension and be completely anonymous. No one knows anyone's IP address, which means there's no way to trace who who you are through your internet provider. So whether you're hosting a dot onion site or you're observing a dot onion site, you know your back and forth communication th- is done through many servers, and it makes it impossible to essentially trace that communication. Now, sure, these websites can and some do contain illegal things like drug trade and horrible types of porn. But the majority of the Dot Onion sites are really not about that. And I think if we focus on the fantastic things that the Tor platform can provide, which in essence is is the safe distribution of information without trackability, it is a wonderful thing that's out there.
1: Yeah, it's a tool like, and it can be used in a lot of good ways. But yeah, there is that dark side. There was a recent study that came out after uh, the, our previous discussion where they, they tried to, to categorize the different websites that are on the dark web and they, they concluded that the majority of them were child pornography. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a lot of nefarious stuff in the anonymous website, in the, the anonymous internet.
2: Yeah, there is. I mean, it, and that is, if anything, that is the wild, wild west part of it because anything does go, yeah. but, it, but there is a lot of, Great uses for that technology. And, you know, like you said, Steve, it's a tool and it is being used in yeah. both ways. And this is something that you, I, I think that our listeners should know about. I think they should get into learn more about the Tor browser and what it provides because you might find it very useful.
1: Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Sherry's Berries. We haven't had this one in a while, guys, but Valentine's Day is coming up. And if you want to get Chocolate-covered strawberries for your significant other. This is the place to do it.
0: I hope my significant other gets them for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Evan, don't be selfish. You should be buying these for your wife.
2: All right, but she has to share them. That's kind of like the secret perk, right? You get these for your wife and then you can you can eat some too. So these start at 19.99. That's over a 40% savings. You go to berries.com, dot com and click on
3: the microphone, then type in the code skeptic Don't forget, guys, these are dipped in white milk and dark chocolate awesomeness. And it's topped with either chocolate chips, decorative swizzle, whatever that is, and nuts. And just if you spend $10 more, you could double
2: your order. So, guys, this is the deal. This is a nice Valentine's Day present idea for you to make it easy. You get these juicy, freshly dipped strawberries, Evan. Come on. Starting Mm. at $19.99. So go to uh, berries.com. B E R R I E S dot com and then type in the word skeptic. You click on the microphone, type in the word skeptic with a K S K E P T I C.
1: Now um, I'm hungry for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's get back to our show.
0: It's time for science or fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You guys ready for this week? Of course. Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. Item number one, scientists have developed a smart keyboard that is self-powered and can identify users by their typing pattern. Item number two, analysis of the oldest fossil primate species indicates that the earliest primates lived underground. And item number three, New research finds that wolves have as much social skill with their own species and with humans as do domestic dogs. Evan, go first.
0: A smart keyboard that is self-powered and can identify users by their typing pattern. A self-powered keyboard. So the energy of the pressing of the keys powers the keyboard. Improbable as maybe all that sounds. Uh, I'm not surprised that they've been able to actually develop something like that. And uh, I think maybe the most surprising thing about that will be the, that so little energy that goes into pressing a, a key on a keyboard will actually power the actual device. So they had to make a keyboard that required very low power, but I think that's plausible. Uh, the oldest fossil primate species indicates the earliest primates lived underground Well, that's different than living in caves. Lived underground, so in holes in the ground, in the earth, under the dirt. The last one. Wolves have as much social skill with their own species and with humans as do domestic dogs. Why wouldn't that be the case? So that one to me is plausible. Well, I guess the one that I don't know... Tomorrow about is the earliest primates living underground. I'm going to have to go with that one being the fiction. I just feel I don't really have any good thoughts about that. It's foreign to me. So that's the fiction.
1: Okay, Bob, uh, the
3: self powered keyboard. That kind of makes sense. Self power though. I really, I'm really curious how that works. I don't know if you can get enough power just from key clacking keys. Um, identifying a user by typing pattern. Yeah, that seems obvious. I th- you know, something that's not a stretch at all. Um, I saw an ad today for a computer in a mouse. So basically all you need is, is a monitor and a keyboard. And that's all you need. The entire computer's in the mouse. So this doesn't seem mm. as surprising as that. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. Let's see, uh, social skill, uh, with the, with the wolves. Yeah. I mean, sounds totally reasonable. Um, I'd like to know how they measure that, but the one that I'm really not buying, though, is the, the primates living underground. I'm just not buying that. I mean, once you are a primate, you know, maybe before we were primates, sure, but when, once you're a primate, I just don't see that working. Uh, so I'm gonna have to say that is fiction.
1: Okay. And Jay.
3: <clears throat> this first one about the keyboard. I have no reason to doubt that. Sure.
2: Self-powered, you know, I, I'm sure that you can reclaim energy from the keystrokes. Maybe the keys are a little bit harder to push down. And then identifying the user, whatever—that's no big deal. That's just an algorithm um, that's built in. So that one, I'm, I think, is science. The second one, the analysis of the oldest fossil: earliest primates lived underground. I think I, I do find that a little strange. But let me just go to the last one. Uh, the one about the wolves have as much social skills with their own species and with humans as do domestic dogs. I, again, like, I don't see any reason to doubt this. No, there, there's lots of differences between wolves and dogs, but essentially they have a lot of common behavioral patterns and the way that they socialize. And I do think that the second one here, the earliest primates lived underground just doesn't seem to make sense to me. I could see them, you know, wanting to find caves and everything, but not enough where you could say that they quote unquote lived underground. I just think that one is the fiction.
1: Okay, so you guys are all in agreement, so I guess we could take these mm-hmm. in order. Start with number one, scientists have developed a smart keyboard that is self-powered and can identify users by their typing pattern. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Yes, yes it, it is. is. Yeah, this one's not that surprising, I agree. Uh, it's hard to be surprised by any computer technology. But, uh, yeah, I thought it was cool that just by the the speed – you know, the sort of attack rate and the pattern of your keystrokes, they could identify different users and it becomes like a signature. And you could use it for a password, for example. You know, you can use it to, to encrypt or protect a station or a computer from the wrong person. Um, that's the kind of thing, like a, like a signature, that's really hard to fake. It's something that you carry with you unconsciously, but somebody else would have a really hard time faking. Right, so that could be very interesting. Yeah, of course. For security reasons, of course, yep. my concerns are with something like that. You know, I could imagine the frustration of like trying to gain access to your computer, and the and the computers having a hard time matching you to whatever the template is. You know, whatever the record, whatever's been recorded. You know, how stuff like that could easily be quirky and frustrating, and not not even if it Is like eighty percent effective. Yeah, could still lock you out, and then you have to go yeah do it over and over again or whatever. It'd have to be really, really, really specific. Work very well before you know I would feel comfortable using it. Mm -hmm. It also means like you know sometimes like you're doing something else and you're sort of lazily typing with one finger rather than doing whatever your usual two-handed typing is. Sure. Yeah. You yeah everybody switches it up. Yeah, but this way you like you would have to do it the one way in order to to trigger the recognition. It's also, yeah, also cool that, yeah, you know, the power of depressing the keys powers the keyboard. That is very novel. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. and It makes sense. We wonder how hard it is, what the feedback is on those keys. Right. Yeah. And does the power kick in immediately at, after the first key press? Or is it, it's gotta have some kind of battery. Yeah, storage. It's storage. Yeah, it. I would imagine. All right. Well, let's go on to number two. Analysis of the oldest fossil primate species indicates that the earliest primates lived underground. You guys, all this think this one is the fiction. So you guys never saw that, those uh, documentaries <laughs> where they show the little early mammals and they're like burrowing underground to hide from the yeah, dinosaurs. Yeah, but
3: they were they were yeah, but they weren't primates.
1: They were yeah, it was a big.
3: I thought about that, but yeah, not not primates.
1: I thought of
0: hobbits, but yeah, obits. But they're, <laughs> they're the
1: earliest primates, though. That's obits. Well, this one is the fiction. Yeah, yeah,
2: baby. Uh, <laughs> smelled it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: The oldest known, you are tarsal and affinities of Paleocene Purgatorius to primates. So the <laughs> oldest, <laughs> like the oldest possible primate was a creature, is a, is a creature known as Purgatorius, which is a cool name. Purgatorius. Known only from its teeth. Oh, I hate that. From cool. dentition. And so they're like, okay, this uh, is probably a primate, but other people thought that it was not even a primate, that it could have been a member, a totally different kind of mammal. Uh, so this paper is reporting on the first non-dentition bones from Purgatorius. Oh, awesome. And so first of all, they confirm that, yep, this little bugger is a primate. It's mm-hmm. very close to the, the base of the primate clade. So if it's not the old oldest primate, it's definitely close. And its ankle bones are consistent with an arboreal lifestyle. So this creature lived in the trees, right. but not underground. Yeah, so it it does seem that a sort of adapting to the trees was probably what made the primate clade a clade.
0: That's Did it have a tail?
1: Oh, yeah. Prehensile? I mean, it would definitely have had a tra- tail, not prehensile. That's not... Not conserved to all primates. You know that's just in the New World monkeys, just in one little branch. But yeah, so so yeah, probably the earliest primates were living in trees, which is also probably a huge advantage. You know for that group.
0: I would think so. Yep. Yeah.
1: The authors say it probably played a key role in the evolutionary success of this mammalian radiation in the Paleocene. Which means that new research finds that wolves have as much social skill with their own species as with humans. And with humans, as do domestic dogs, is science. This was the one I was hoping was going to get you guys, because almost, you know, dogs were domesticated to get along with people, and it, that was sort Good of the people, yeah. That was the standard hypothesis that dogs are just better, more social than wolves. Uh, but what the researchers did was look at again. Obviously, wolves are not domesticated, and they're not going to have the same relationship with people. But they just wanted to know did. Do they have the same skill set that domestic dogs do when it comes to social skills? So one of the things that they did was that they had a person hide food and then they compared the ability of dogs and wolves to find the food but using cues from the human. So like following the the person's gaze or their, their body language or whatever. The thinking is that dogs would be much more in tune to their human masters than would a wolf and would be able to find the food quicker, other things being equal. But the wolves were at least as good as the dogs as at finding, paying attention to, and using information provided by humans. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, in, in retrospect, it's not that surprising because, again, the older evolutionary theory was that humans domesticated dogs from wolves. But the more recent thinking is that wolves adapted to human civilization and they got a lot of the way there by themselves before uh, uh. the wolves that were able to sort of survive on the edges of human civilization. I mean, that was a huge advantage. It was free food and Mm -hmm. also the humans would keep away predators and competitors and the humans probably tolerated the cuter and less menacing looking wolves and eventually it got to the point where they were actually able to incorporate them into their, their tribe or whatever. And then they, they completed the domestication process. But they probably already got most of the way there by themselves. Interesting. As we know, evolution works with the raw material it has. If wolves didn't already have the, the potential to adapt to human civilization, then they wouldn't have evolved in that direction in the first place. So anyway, it's like you know, only certain animals really can be domesticated and you know you have to have certain features present ahead of time. So, anyway, so it makes sense that wolves were already had they they pack and they're social and those are two things that make it easier to be domesticated. Wolfie. So Steve, yeah, interesting. Could you just could you just live with a
2: wild wolf?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean they're 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 wild animals, they're not domesticated animals, but you know, yeah, sure, you could um have a a particularly calm wolf that you could live with, just like you know. I think it's always going to be a risk, but just like you know, the lion tamers, you know, can live with lions, but they just may tear your throat out one day. But yeah, <laughs> um, but, you know, you could go years <laughs> living with them and they're fine. Remember that YouTube video St. of the Fried two guys more. who raised that lion from the cub and then Christian? Yeah, Christian. And then it was the, they showed the their reunion and the lion is running at them and you're wondering, right? Is the lion going to jump on them and eat them? Yeah. But then he just hugged them and it would, he, he was acting like a little kitten to yeah, these that two That was oh, awesome. You'd wow. look up Christian no, the Lion and cool.
0: watch the whole thing. It was wonderful. This time you're throwing Christians to the Lion.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, the, again, certain types of animals can bond, I think, with humans. Because they already have the social behavior there, but they're not domesticated. So obviously their, their behavior is not as predictable. So that would be cool. I mean, you know, if, if I were going to have a wild animal as a pet, a wolf is uh, cracks my top five. Although I have to say, <laughs> a, a lion would be would be the number one.
2: Oh, without a doubt, I mean, I mean a lion, uh, a
1: male uh, lion with a full mane. That's
2: that's what I would go exactly. For. A lion is the number one animal I want to get into a room with. Like I would love, to, <laughs> you know, of, under the right conditions uh, and everything. I've been yeah. trying actually for a while, <laughs> um, you know. But think about like you see those videos and you see there's one guy, this wonderful lion. I wouldn't even say – he's not a lion tamer. Like he knows how to coexist with them and he's part of um, a lion pride Yeah, in a way, I guess, right? Like they fully accepted him and he just lies around with them and scratches them and everything and it would just be – it would be an amazing experience to meet a real lion in person like that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, scary but amazing. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs)
1: Scary. All right. Good job, guys. First sweep of the year.
0: Yes. 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 Very good. Bob, you're still –
1: Nursing a 100% record for this year? I plan on nursing for a while. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm not going to go out of my way to shoot you down, but I mean, please (laughs) don't. Don't expect every (laughs) week to be as easy as this week. (laughs) Next week's theme
0: is called fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Evan, give us a quote. Oh, we do have a quote, don't we? Here is this week's quote. From my experience, let me say this. In today's world, it's no bad thing for a politician to have had the benefit of a scientific background. And not only politicians, those who work in industry and in commerce and in investment, indeed so important has it become that I believe we are right to make science a compulsory subject for all school children.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Those are
0: the utterances of Margaret Thatcher former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1979 to 1990. She was the longest-serving British Prime Minister of the 20th century and the only woman to have held the office. She entered Oxford University in 1943. This was before becoming a politician. Graduated in 1947 with second-class honors in the four-year Chemistry Bachelor of Science degree program specializing in X-ray crystallography under the supervision of Dorothy Hodgkin. How cool is that? And did you know, and did you know, Margaret Thatcher may have helped invent soft serve ice cream. What?
2: How cool. Um,
0: Yep. Because after she graduated from Oxford with her chemistry degree, she worked as a research chemist at a Hammersmith food manufacturer called J. Lyons and Company, was part of a team that was tasked with whipping more air into ice cream, and they came up with a kind of soft ice cream that used fewer ingredients, saved money on production costs. And so, therefore, yeah, it's possible that she had a hand in soft serve ice cream, which we all enjoy today. That's an interesting quote, Evan. She
1: starts out strong. You know, like, I'm you're mm-hmm. wondering where is she going to go with this? Like, yeah, politicians should have a scientific background. But then she ends yes. with, therefore, science should be compulsory for school children. Well, duh. That's it? That's as far as you got with that big, strong Premise was that we should teach science to school kids. I thought to all. Yeah, but still, I mean, I thought she, she would have a much stronger conclusion, you know, from from the premise that she laid out there. Anyway, that was well, it. Seemed to be like a little fizzle at the end there for me. She,
0: she's clearly referring to the fact that not all. School children benefit from a science education. In fact, dare I say, I, I felt that my science education as I was growing up was rather lax looking back on it. The, the requirements, uh, that I had were, you know, certainly, uh, not what, not what I would want to see yeah. for, for, for my children growing up. It, it was, it was slim. I, I really didn't have, I didn't have to take a lab class. I didn't have to do any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know. And especially coming from, you know, anyone in, in, in politics, no matter what your, your, your flavor of, of political s- leanings are, uh, this is, you know, coming from, coming from the mouth of a politician, I, I think is kind of refreshing.
1: Yeah. No, I was definitely agree with the sentiment. And it is interesting coming from a political person, but I just thought the conclusion should have been stronger. She did her best. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> guys, we have Nexus coming up April 9th to 12th, New York City. I'm doing a workshop on. Critical thinking skills.
0: Yeah.
2: You know anything about those? And I'm doing a workshop with Brian Wecht uh, about social media, which should be very interesting. Cool, Jay. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, we have, t- it's a two-parter. Um, there's- the details are on nexus.org. The, the conference, uh, speaker list is, is filling up nicely. We have, we have some really awesome talks planned for this year. And on Friday night at Nexus, we are going to be running the extravaganza show. Um, it's, the, the tickets are selling well, but there's there's plenty of room, so bring your friends and family if you're interested. The show is, is going to be a two-hour exploration.
1: Yeah, this is a fun show. But this is the one that we did several times already when we were down under, and it's just a ton of fun. It's basically – it's something different from anything that you have seen us do before. It's a quiz show, and there are skits that we do. And lots of fun bits. We have lots of fun with each other. It's audience music. participation. And- yeah, audience participation, music, science, geekery. It's a ton of fun. We definitely recommend that you come see that. And this is a totally standalone event. You don't have to. If you don't have time to come to the rest of the conference, uh, you can come just to the Friday night show. So you could buy. Yeah, you could buy a separate ticket for that. So, which, again, we'd love to see a lot of our listeners there. We, it's going to be a ton of fun, trust us.
2: And George Robb hosts that show, actually. So he's the MC running the whole thing, and he's part of yeah. everything that we do. Um, oh, yeah. So please uh, please do buy
1: tickets for that. You're going to really enjoy it. We'll, we'll have some announcements in the next couple of weeks about our keynote speaker and maybe some other big names once they're 100% confirmed. We can't say anything until we have 100% confirmation. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining me this week.
2: Thank you, Steve. Thank Thank you, you, Doctor.
1: And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.